This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Here we are, midway into Women's History Month, one year after the publication of The Earth in Her Hands. In honor of these two thresholds, this week I am joined by one of the women in the book, Edwina Van Gaal. Edwina is a landscape designer based on New York's Long Island. She has designed landscapes around New York in a successful career that spans many years. It was midway through this career that Edwina had an epiphany about the potential impact, for better or worse, of how our gardens are cared for in this world. And in order to help tilt the balance back towards gardens large and small being positive contributors to the life, health, habitat, and biodiversity of our world, she founded the Perfect Earth Project, promoting toxic-free lawns and landscapes for people, pets, and planet. In the last few years, Edwina has expanded her mission with advocacy known as Two-Thirds for the Birds, based on the research of Dr. Doug Tallamy, urging all residential and campus landscapes to dedicate two-thirds of their plantings to native plants for habitat value and to commit to being toxin-free. Edwina, it seems so long ago that we spoke for the interview for The Earth in Her Hands, and just as COVID hit and the world began to shut down, we were supposed to meet in person in New York City. I am just so pleased to welcome you to the program today. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Jennifer. Tell us first, for for listeners, to, to get up to speed a little bit, what is your current way of articulating your relationship with plants and gardens and horticulture right now, both personally and professionally, Edwina? Okay. Well, right now, in terms of what I do on an average day, is I have fairly, I'm getting there, retiring from doing actual Mm -hmm. landscape designs, although I have to say an occasional job sneaks through (laughs) my boundaries, which are not always so good. And because I've been so energized and excited about the Perfect Earth Project, which I will also explain more about later, but the whole environmental aspect of what I do, which I see is really the combination of everything I ever learned and people are actually interested in hearing about it, which is so, it's, it's a joy akin to the gardening itself, you know, that now it's my ter- time to turn all this around and sort of spout it back out. And so that's what I'm working on. Um, our website, our educational programs, doing things like this with you, getting the word out, and occasionally the landscape design. I take jobs now and then that I think might fill in a blank in my practice that something I haven't tried. And I really don't want to blab on about something if I haven't done it and maybe failed once or twice. Yeah. I, I, that uh, is a very insightful place to be in your own practice. At home, tell us a little bit about your own personal home garden practice. Well, I have a really interesting piece of property that I was very lucky to buy when the real estate values in this particular area were quite low. It was too far from 
kind of the happening part of the Hamptons for most people to be interested. So it's it's about four or five acres and it extends from Akabonic Harbor. So I have a salt marsh on one side and the and it rises slowly away from the water to where it meets a road. So it's long and fairly narrow and each part of the property now represents a little, a slightly different ecosystem as those relationships to the water and to the inland forest are expressed. The soils change a bit. So this is now my work. I, I actually made a promise to this property um, that I would never leave because I realized, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so that I still was thinking in terms of next. And I thought, no, because, you know, I'd always through my life, ever since I left home for college, it was always the next place I would live and the next this. And I said, no more thinking about next. This is this is it. How can I really, really create a relationship with this place that is based on a commitment? And so I said, OK, I promise I'll never leave you and I will do you no harm. And that's been what I've built from since then in terms of all the gardening that happens here. Lately, I have been working on creating this place, which I call Marsh House, as a place of experiment. Well, it's always been experimentation. (laughs) It's a lot of unfinished projects, (laughs) Um, but, um, but it's also going to be a place for teaching. And so for the last couple of years, i taught a workshop for the New York Botanical Garden in their fall workshop series. And uh, a handful of garden designers and other interested people would come here and we would walk around. And I was a little bit concerned at first that I don't really have like the kind of garden here that people wanted to talk about. But I found out instead that the conversations were excellent and everyone really liked it. So I said, okay, I can do that. So we're going to go forward with that. And so as part of it, I hired a gardener and gardener slash educator to work with me here, which is the greatest luxury ever. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim is um, so, uh, but the only bad side is that I'm spending too much more time writing and too much less time gardening. So we have had also this beautiful pause moment to really think about what are the lessons that would be most valuable for people to come here and learn. All right. I want to get really into your, you know, career path and then the the formation of the Perfect Earth Project. Uh, but first, let's take let's take listeners back a little bit. Take us back to where you were born and raised and who were the people and plants and places that grew you into a person for whom this would be your life's work, Edwina? I was born in Brewster, New York, which is in Putnam County, and just a little too far from the city to have been a commuter community, um, and a little bit too rural and not that attractive to be a weekender, a popular weekend place. So it was a very quiet place. And I grew up in an old farmhouse on an abandoned farm. Most of the farmland had been sold off, so it just had a few acres with five brothers and sisters. But we were surrounded by farmland, all of it free to roam 
in, which we did every day after school. It was change your clothes and go out and don't come back till dinner. So in a house of six children, it's kind of tumultuous. And I read a lot and I kind of liked to find places of solitude. So I had a lot of imaginary places under shrubs, uh, trees crawling around, (laughs) in trees, brooks. And um, my grandmother was a terrific influence because she was a major gardener. And she lived in the summers, not far away, and would often invite me over to her house and spend time with her in her garden. My mom was president of the garden club. My dad had a vegetable garden and we worked in those gardens. And so I didn't ever imagine that I would grow up to want to garden, like to garden as choice. That was the last thing. Although I can't say I hated it. It was just something that I had to do. But then just when I was in college, I got a place that had a little backyard and I decided to give it a try and I did everything wrong. I planted herbs in the shade, you know, just (laughs) completely clueless. But over time, then I got married. And when I had a child, I was back here in the East and I made a massive vegetable garden. Mm. Then it was the, you know, the seventies and it was, um, I was a classic hippie mom. I I grew all my own food. I made my baby's clothes. I, I did it all. And, and then it was time to Move to the next phase of the, the, you know, the divorced single mom making a career. And I gravitated towards things that were land-based. So I, I was running properties and I just didn't see a way of going, going back to school to become a landscape architect. I looked at it, but didn't quite have what I was looking for. So I just started taking courses And by that time, I was living and working in New York City for a real estate management company. And I was the one that they said, oh, Edwina likes to garden, get her to do it. As a result, I was given some pretty darned amazing projects. Like today, it would never, never have come my way because in those days, they just, the, the, the title landscape designer really didn't exist. And landscape architects were more doing public parks and stuff. So this was a un charted territory. I was also lucky enough at that time to get some really great freelance work. Um, So I was designing the channel gardens for Rockefeller Center because at the moment they were in between garden managers. And so, so every time, so I designed about two years of gardens for them, and you had to always be at least a year out because everything was custom grown. Now, describe for, for there may be listeners out there who don't know what this is or, or what these gardens are, how they worked. And I remember in working with you for, for the book, it, it, this being one of those just great stories where like the universe just came together and gave you very clear instructions and support to go in this direction, Edwina. And it was, it was, it's a great story. So describe for people like just what a, what a serendipity this was to be handed this cool project and then to have your creativity just light up in, in manifesting what you did. It was pretty amazing because I was actually on a, a tour that a landscape architect 
friend of mine had asked me to go with him. It was an ASLA tour of the of the of all the Rockefeller Center gardens. They have a lot. They have a lot of roof gardens and actually a lot on the ground. A lot of stuff in lobbies. And so the the representative from Rock Center was there. And since I was actually working for a real estate management company and by that time was in charge of maintaining quite a large number of street trees and apartment building gardens Mm -hmm. and roof gardens. I had a lot of questions for him, (laughs) you know, about managing insects and, and what was survivability and all kinds of things. And so at the end of the tour, he said to me, who are you? (laughs) Pesky woman, who are you? (laughs) And he said, well, um, I need somebody to design gardens for us because we're kind of at this in-between state. And I said, but I'm not a landscape architect. I'm I'm the outlier here. And he said, I don't care. You're the one who asked the questions. And so I, he said, give me some give me a list of ideas. So I went back to him with about a hundred ideas <laughs> and, and he picked uh, enough for a couple of years and happily one of them was the topiary garden. Mm. And so I originated the concept of the topiaries in rock center. And what some, what people don't know is that the reason the channel gardens, the channel gardens run from fifth Avenue to the skating rink. And that's the place where everybody enters, uh, enters Rock, uh, Rockefeller Center, mm-hmm. and in the winter, and the, they have all the the angels there, and the and the tree, and so it's a major view yes. channel. And the reason it's called Channel Gardens is that on the right, on one side, I don't know if it's north or south, but on one side is the English building, and the other side is the French building. Ah. And they each have a wonderful garden on the roof that represents the gardening style of each of those countries. So the space in between is the channel. Ah, that is so great. And so just um, describe the like the installation of your first channel garden, because this was also a good story. Well, you know, I actually am not sure what the, the first one was probably the tulips because that's how they start the spring daffodils or tulips. And but there was a lot to learn because you have to get the trucks all in. Every plant has to be in perfect bloom or bud because depending on the time of year, they stay in for different amounts of time. Right. And the, the buses start coming down Fifth Avenue, the public buses at 7 a.m. So we had to be we had to get all of our trucks offloaded and out of there by seven. And then people start coming to work at Rock Center by about eight thirty. And so we were supposed to be substantially cleaned up by then so that there wasn't soil and mess. It was supposed to just miraculously happen overnight. <laughs> but the, the the funniest one is so after I'd been doing it, I guess around six months or so. I read about Kurt Blumel and his grasses that he was growing. And so I went down there because I needed grasses for the topiary garden because I wanted it to look like an African savanna. And so I was looking all around and I found this guy in Maryland who was actually growing grasses, which was like anything other than turf grass at the time was Unusual, not, right. was not on the radar. And what so, year was this? Oh, gosh. That would have been like 
82. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 About 81, 82. Yeah. Okay. And so when I got there, I was so blown away by his place and his garden and everything. And I said, we got to do a whole garden like this. And he said, fine, you can dig whatever you want of my specimens. So that meant I didn't have to wait five years to grow stuff on for the show. So I booked it for the following late summer, for that late summer, so that they would be at their, you know, all in bloom and looking their most amazing. So time came. We put in an all-grass garden in Rockefeller Center. The president of Rock Center came to work and said, what is that? Weeds? Get it out of here. Get it. Get Be gone. Take it away. And the guy who I reported to said, mm, well, the New York Times has a story about it in the paper today. Because I, I don't know if you ever knew Linda Yang. No, but I I know the name. Yep. Yeah. She was the garden columnist for the New York Times and she heard about it and she was really excited and she knew about Kerplumel and this like undercurrent of talk about grasses. And so she did a, a story on it and so they left it and it was popular. Everybody yeah. really liked it. Yeah. That's so great. And just, I can imagine the magic having lived in New York as a young adult and just you know, it can get, it can wear on you. Let's just say it's not all like glamour and city lights and the, the magic of like waking up in the morning, getting on the bus, heading into town for work, uh, or heading uptown for work or whatever it is. And to see that garden having materialized overnight. I mean, it must've been really great, Edwina. We liked, we really liked doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so after I had um, probably done that for a year, they hired a garden manager named David Murbach, who became head of gardens for the Rockefeller Center. And he had recently gotten his um, master's at Longwood and we became fast friends. And then he just, he said, how do you meet other people? professionals in New York City. And I said, I don't know. (laughs) You just keep working. I don't know. And he said, let's do it. So he decided and we he started the Metro Hort group, which is an incredible group. And we we just started trying to Linda Yang got involved and we just started calling people up and it's it's thriving to this day. And I, I would love it if every city or every community had something like it because it's a fantastic platform for gardeners to share their experiences, their job opportunities, there are sourcing. Everyone is consistently generous. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think we find that with gardeners uh, in general. I mean, maybe, you know, it sometimes waxes and wanes based on where the, the fields are. But in general, gardeners are very collaborative, very community oriented and very generous in sharing knowledge about about anything, plant species, care, maintenance, experience. And that's how we all that's how we all learn. And that's how we all learn to be better. So I'm going to fast forward us just a little bit. Yes. You you go on to start an extremely successful landscape design business of your own named for you. It really takes off. Um, and you work for some really big names and your career is solid. And you take us from there, maybe mention a couple of highlights of 
maybe gardens or or clients who helped grow this before we get to the kind of enlight uh, like one of the enlightenment moments that we're headed towards well i think um it's it it was not you know a skyrocketing trajectory <laughs> but it was a solid build hard work hard work yep. yeah it it just kept building and, and in the beginning it was based in the city and then um more and more people in the city just asked me to work on their country homes so it moved out and one of my city clients was building a house out here in the Hamptons and um, they said they would, they said, do you work in the Hamptons or in the country? And I said, well, I'm a country girl, <laughs> but I don't have any jobs out there. So they said, well, we'd like you to do ours. And it was a big project and they were the most amazing clients in terms of being very discerning and very, at the same time, understanding. And we had great conversations and it was a project that I was, I remain very proud of, and it got published in the New York Times Magazine, and that was that probably really did it. Yeah, yeah that was it. That was a key term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you you grow to being a fairly big practice with staff and and all of this. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. How I did. big I- was the practice at its height? I had about six or seven landscape architects working for me. Mm-hmm. And then we had what we jokingly called our, the curatorial staff. Um, because one of the things that I think was different about me in the profession was that I was a, I was a gardener. You know, uh, <laughs> at one point be in the early parts, I actually took a couple of years off and went to work for a landscape contractor. And that was really invaluable. I mean, everyone should work on a landscape crew. If they're going to direct one, they should have worked on one. Yeah. Because you know what the challenges are that they have, and you sure understand when they're bullshitting you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's super helpful. Yeah, two key pieces of information, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so, anyways, so the curatorial staff, so to speak, was were gardeners who worked for me. And they did um, all of the the planting plans. Basically, we worked on them together, and they made sure that the plants that could deliver to people's sites were good. They went out in the field and tagged everything, or custom grew stuff, or so. That was um, something that I don't think other offices were offering at the time. And at this point in in the your career, were you doing maintenance of gardens? Never. And, that was yeah. something I really learned from working for a landscape contractor. Yeah. And at this point in your career, was the idea of an organic garden or a climate appropriate garden, was that one of your highest priorities yet? Nope. Okay. Not at all. Okay. That When I started out, everyone wanted an English mixed border. Yeah. And so I we knew every new plant that hit the market. It didn't matter where it was from or how hard it was to grow, mm-hmm. how how unhappy it was going to be where you planted it. It was really all about. But at the same time, I have to say one other part of me was also getting, uh, starting to work in the world of modern. Yes. And in fact, it started very early in with one of my very first little jobs in the Hamptons, a smaller job in which I worked with an incredible designer named Joe Durso. And 
he was really became my mentor. And so this whole idea of the beauty of, of natural plants, he didn't know what, you know, what, what they were, but he too learned as we worked together that just the natural beauty of things and how to keep a project really simple. And, and that alone brings a peace and a kind of connectivity to a space. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with landscape designer Edwina Van Gaal, who has put the weight of her successful landscape design business behind the founding of the Perfect Earth Project in order to vastly improve the planetary impact of gardens, starting with her own garden and the gardens of her very big name clients. We'll be right back. Stay with us. One of the most important things I take away from this conversation with Edwina Van Gaal is her own self-awareness and willingness to keep learning, to keep getting better as the gardener and human she wants to be. There are plenty of people who, in her position, working with the wealthy elite of her human community, finding relative fame and financial success, would simply stick to the formula and would not welcome or take meaningful action on an epiphany that told her she could be doing so much better. And while in our moment in time, it is perhaps easy to dismiss such privileged conditions as hopeless or hopeless parts of our many planetary challenges, it feels so much more reasonable to expect these very conditions of privilege to learn and do better also. And not only to learn and do better, but to leverage their privilege in modeling meaningful change. As Edwina points out in the course of our conversation, it became clear to her that by getting even one large overfed lawn and garden off of chemicals made a significant difference to the chemical load in that garden's watershed and habitat. And the message that that sent out into the greater world of people watching that one most likely well-admired overfed lawn and garden of privilege makes a continuous impact. We can all find our own blind spots. We can all do better in our gardens. We can all catch ourselves not using our privileges, whatever they may be, to their best effect. That's what I take to heart right here and what I so admire Edwina for modeling. Welcome back to this week's conversation with landscape designer Edwina Van Gaal. When we left off, Edwina was sharing the genesis and early years of her career building a design name for herself, ultimately designing gardens for the likes of Ina Garten, Calvin Klein, Robert De Niro, and the artists Richard Serra and David Sally. As we come back, she shares more about the experience that led to her own epiphany that the gardens she was designing could be far better about the impact they had on the world, eventually leading her to found the Perfect Earth Project. Uh, one of the things that worked out really well for me from the start was was working with architects and 
So uh, they really play an important role in a project. And one of, I probably get back to this later because I could wander off on this subject, the subject of ego in the landscape. Uh (laughs) So one of the things that I kind of decided that I would try to be very sensitive to is how much I pee on a place. And so I figured most of my jobs came because some architectural change was being made, right? So you're either building a house or you're renovating one or something like that. And then they say, let's hire someone to do the landscape. So there's the architecture is a statement. And then the place is the place. That's the place is a very important, you know, the the genius loci. So I figured Mother Nature, she's a presence. And then the architecture, major presence. So if I were to put another presence, another ego in between those two, I decided that I should really try hard to make my presence as like segued as possible so that it, when you're looking at the architecture, it responded to the architecture. And when you're looking out from the architecture, it responded to the surroundings as seamlessly as possible. So that there was really nothing out there that said, and Edwina was here. (laughs) This is the overriding thing to me. So I became, I guess, starting to have a little bit of a reputation maybe as working well with architects. And whenever possible, if I had a nice job and I could bring an architect in because I I totally love collaborating and I love working with people who do something better than I do. So any component of a landscape, maybe it's a a small structure, a shade structure, a small building. If I could, I would bring an architect in, not try to do it myself. And that always made for really fun expansions. And so that continued along. And in two. 2001, Frank Gehry asked me, he had asked me to do some other stuff with him before that had never panned out. And so then he said, I have the job for you because I'm a relatively small office. And so it it had to be a job that was real plant-based and didn't require a lot of infrastructure. So he got a job designing a museum of biodiversity in Panama. His wife is Panamanian. The Panamanian canal territories had just reverted to Panamanian sovereignty. And then Mm -hmm. his office had been charged with looking at what they could do with them, master planning, all of this really amazing real estate. So the one project that remained when the dust settled and the costs came in and (laughs) reality hit (laughs) was the Museum of Biodiversity, which is on a piece of land that separates the canal from the Bay of Panama. So I went down there to do that, and it was extraordinary. And of course, you know, when you arrive with Frank, you really get the red carpet. So even like E.O. Wilson came down to talk to us. I mean, like all my heroes were there. Right. And I got introduced to the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, which is known as STRI. They were my science advisory team. And if you haven't guessed yet, I'm a real science geek. And so that just became the most wonderful relationship. The people on the board were all offering me a place to stay in their homes in weird places all over the country in wonderful little outposts. So I, uh, in the course of all of that, I 
I came upon a place where they were doing um, a, a young forestry um, grad from Yale was starting a native species reforestation project. I got involved. I bought land. We started a nonprofit. Um, it, it, I added my own twist because by that time I said, this, this can't use chemicals. No way. Because I never used them in my own garden. And I said, wait a minute. You're promoting native plants and you're teaching native people to plant them with chemicals. These are native plants. What, what do you mean? They, were, they evolved here. Why do you need the chemicals? Oh, it won't work without them. But anyway, we did prove that it does. So I started the Azuero Earth Project. Um, with a bunch of others, they all were much younger and went on to their careers, and I was there. But it, now it is a totally independent, totally Panamanian organization, which is oh, I'm really goodness. proud of. It totally took off and fledged. But at the same time, people were saying, well, what are you doing at home? And yeah. I realized, like, in, and then my dentist <laughs> one day. I love this story. You have to set the scene. You're, you're in the dentist chair. And... It's not just any dentistry. This was oral surgery. <laughs> so oh, he really yeah. had me, you know. And he was saying, <laughs> he, he said, well, I own a piece of property on the water. There's a lot of waterfront property out here. And he said, you know, I'm really not comfortable with the chemicals I put on my property going into the water, where do I learn about doing without? And he said, I know you're doing this thing down in Panama and you don't use chemicals. And, and, and so I was, whoa, whoa. and, um, and when I got back in my car, it, it kind of hit me. Oh gosh, this is what I'm going to do next. This is what, this is, this is my future. I have to do this. And so I started talking to my clients about let's give it a try because I didn't know what they were doing with their properties. Once I left, I never paid any attention to lawn. It was just a right. piece of, it, of, you know, negative space. Right. And so you, you have this, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 there is Buddha under the Bodhi tree and then there is Edwina in the dentist chair. And I just <laughs> having this enlightenment of like, I have been working on this, this big thing that has filled my heart in terms of protecting biodiversity in the rainforest in Panama. And I forgot to do it in my own back garden. Yep. And you are, you are sort of hit with this thunderbolt, which I just, again, like the first time you told me the story and again, right now I get little chills because these are things that are so easy for each of us to overlook, right? Is that over there is also right here. Right. And so my clients said, yes, let's give it a try. There, there were a few and that I was still actively working with. So we found out that actually there were a lot of chemicals going on their properties, a lot. And nobody could really answer the question like why (laughs) so then I started looking into that and finding out how really harmful they are which everybody else was kind of looking the other way and many of the landscapers who were applying them said yeah well we're kind of phasing out doing it ourselves we so most of that is now handled by subs and and so I don't really deal with that and so that was interesting Right. And that those like layers of um, 
hiddenness of this information of of going to a big house and saying, you know, what do you what do you put in your garden? And the owner saying, I don't know, let's check with the landscape maintenance people. And then they say, I don't really know. And then, you know, you get to the sub and they're like, well, you know, this is our just standard application. This is our default. We apply this herbicide, this pesticide, this pre-emergent, this, you know, and we do it on a, a regular rotation, whether it's needed or not, uh, as just a default, right? And it's just pounds and pounds and gallons and gallons of chemicals. Yeah, that it's exactly right. That's it. That's it. That, that then I found out that there's a statistic that um, that the typical American landscape uses two to four times more chemical per square foot than agriculture. And so I thought, oh wow. So every square foot I save is like twice as valuable, two to four times more valuable than what's happening, like than saving farmland. And there were already a lot of people working on farmland and organics because we do put our priority into what we put in our mouth. So there, understandably, that was where the movement went first was to organic food. And a lot of people that I already worked with or certainly since, they have an organic vegetable garden. No question. Why would you make a vegetable garden that wasn't? But they are not paying attention to their lawns or landscapes and what and and so that's been my area so i decided that's it that's where i am focusing is non-agricultural land management and how can i raise awareness about this at first i thought i was also going to sort of create a whole educational program for the landscape contracting industry but i found that that is better left to simply pressure because it's too complicated and too widespread, too broad. And actually, there are lots of resources available that simply need a bigger audience. So how do I build the audience? By getting anyone who is a, a, a decision maker. So from the smallest person who owns a piece of land, who's going to Home Depot and buying something to put on their lawn, to a big... Um, let's say an HOA or a a big housing complex or a massive campus, everybody there has to say, no, no, we don't want that. And not accept the response that it's more expensive and it doesn't work because it is not more expensive and it does work. It just takes observation. You have to change your practices and you don't just substitute an organic product for a chemical product. It's about working with your with your land, not against it. And that's really hard for people who have done something in a particular way and created a very particular business model that has been very successful for them for a long time. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with landscape designer Edwina Van Gaal, founder of the Perfect Earth Project, advocating for toxin-free gardens, and more recently, a co-founder of an initiative known as Two-Thirds for the Birds, in collaboration with the mission of Dr. Doug Tallamy. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
This part of the conversation with Edwina brings to mind a lesson plan curriculum that I worked with as the native plant garden curator at the Gateway Science Museum on the campus of California State University, Chico, for many years. At the time, a university professor studying how the brain works in response to its environment, worked as a docent at the museum, and he led our senior staff in an exercise illustrating the many ways our brains strive to function efficiently. But in doing that, it also can deprive us of the ability to actually continue to choose consciously, to actually see where we are, or see what we're doing, or understand in a conscious way why to any of the above. It was such a powerful illustration to me of how many defaults we live with every day, from how we live to where we live to who we live with to who we live without, like increasingly songbirds or living soil, or a healthy bug population, or healthy and thriving humans. We become accustomed to myriad conditions that if we really thought about them, if we really saw them for what they were, we would not choose them any longer. It's a challenge I think we all need to pose to ourselves in our gardens and with our gardening. What are we doing Who are we asking to do it? And to what end? To what end for our garden? To what end for our neighborhoods? To what end for our family? To what end for any living organism who might visit or live with the garden? And that's not even to mention the people who are being asked to run the lawnmowers, run the leaf blowers, or the chemical applicants. (sighs) There are so many, many ways we can do better and expect better for ourselves and for the lives of all others. As Edwina and the group who put together the Two Thirds for the Bird project make clear, as long as we are part of the problems in even small ways, then there is ample opportunity for us to be part of the solutions instead. I want to keep working on seeing those opportunities. Welcome back to this week's conversation with landscape designer Edwina Van Gaal. As we come back, Edwina is sharing her own realization that we as gardeners and landowners and homeowners cannot let default mode or ignorance born of the many things we are all trying to pay attention to each day lead to our gardens or lawns being cared for with chemicals. It's a default complacency none of us can afford and none of us really want if we take the time to think about it. You can't let it go you can't it's it's just a sad fact of life like you you don't want to get a haircut with your eyes closed mm-hmm. you, know? <laughs> you know it's like what no you you get to know you know and what but and so people know what's in their homes they know pretty well what is good work and what is bad work but they don't know when they walk outside the door and they've been a little bit spoiled by the fact that landscapers just sort of say to them well that's okay 
you know, honey, you don't need to know. I'm here. I'm going to take care of this for you. Or people who a lot of people do their own. And they, too, have like the mow and blow. And this is what your neighborhood expects of you. And this is what your like your your neighbors expect of you. And to do other means does mean learning something. So a really great thing that's happening in that respect is the whole movement towards pollinator pollinator patches, you know, pollinator pathways. There's a wonderful little app that just came out called um, lawnstowildflowers.org. And it they promote a, a, like getting making a six by six foot patch and they tell you how to do it. And it's so it can't be bad. <laughs> you know, you can't fail really. <laughs> so I'm getting a lot of bolstering. And what's happening, of course, is now my chemical free message has, of course, grown to include habitat and native plants and biodiversity. Can you share an anecdote of one of your clients who, you know, you monitored their receipts and their their maintenance inputs uh, over a certain period of time? You came to the realization that it was heavily chemical. And you came to them and said, you know what, I want to experiment on your land and I want to turn it around to chemical free. And they said, okay, I'm willing to give it a try. Can you give us an anecdote in one of those scenarios where, you know, it just like what that meant to them when it did successfully turn around and their maybe renewed relationship and enjoyment of their garden space, knowing that it wasn't full of chemicals? Well, and there there are two kinds too, you know, because some of them have just embraced it 100%. And there there are probably no more failures using a nature-based practices than there are using chemicals, but somehow or other people are less worried about it if you can give it a drug, you know, than in saying, no, we wait, nature will heal this problem but some people get really into it and and so they of course <laughs> are the people that i tend to have much closer relationships to because it is kind of like a club it's a wonderful club and it changes them so they start looking at oh look at this is what's happening oh right i understand that process oh my landscape is not out of control it's it's just you know it's teenager or something. It's, it, it does that now. And, yeah. and no, my lawn is not the greenest in the spring. And I'm proud of it because I haven't juiced it to the point where it's preternaturally green, which will make it sicker and weaker later when the stresses come. And then they then tell their friends and it, it, it multiplies. And then I have others. And now some of them, of course, because this has been going on for a while, now have grandchildren. And they're extraordinarily pleased about that. And they tell the people who come to visit them, um, you, like, this is this is safe. You can roll around in this grass. Like, this is all safe here. But then others are just, like, all the time calling, well, my neighbors don't have this problem. There's a brown spot. And I don't know why. And, you know, I kind of almost feel that when people who have that attitude – have actually prolonged the time it takes to transition because they're not, they're so concerned about addressing every tiny thing so fast 
then you kind of have to resort to some not chemical, but slightly artificial, like bolstering. Yeah. An intervention that, that if you just waited, if you just gave it a chance mm-hmm. to do what it's going to do, it would take care of yep. it. Yeah. You need to build resilience. Yeah. You need to get those roots way down deep and, you know, and, and get long, strong things and stop pruning things. Cause People don't realize that pruning is a series of little wounds. So every time you meatball a shrub, you have just covered it with tiny wounds. And you've removed all of the growth, the new growth that it made to feed its roots. And so that's just asking for failure with that poor plant. Yeah. It's stress. It's a def it's a it's a stress. Yeah. And- all of these little connections um, that we learn and then we re-see them and, you know, and then you see how your, your, your lawn, your plants, they interface with your grandchildren or your children or your friend's grandchildren. And you see how, like, as you said, how it reflects on the architecture of your home, both physically and metaphorically. And it then interconnects with the forest and the life of the forest and the marsh and the, the life of the, the waterways all around you. And to think that your garden as yours there at Marsh House is part of the like breathing rhythm of these spaces just fills me with joy, Edwina. That's really a nice way to put it because that is the ultimate goal for people to recognize that their property is part of a family, you know, that it's part of nature. And that goes back to that whole really big, very deep and complicated question about our relationship to nature and why is it that people feel this incredible necessity to subdue it. And and that then is about like, is it ego or is it fear that makes you want to create a landscape that's fixed in time, that's totally in your control, like, you know, like Versailles or something that like right. that all I see is is mine and it will and it's just in my image and that's it. And it's never going to change. So there'll never be a surprise and there's so a, a, one of my friends, um, somewhat client is Isaac Mizrahi, and he had the best way to put it. He said, "Oh, it's like a bad facelift. You know, <laughs> it can't ever age gracefully. You know, it it just gets stranger and stranger as you keep trying to clip it and prune it and subdue it into this predetermined shape. And that's what." people have come to think is makes them feel safe and peaceful. I think some of that came out of post-war. I think other of it goes back to just our primal original need to um, overcome the the dangers that were inherent in nature. There's a lot (laughs) to go into there, but, um, and people have written books on it. And, but now it's my really fundamental question is what makes you feel at peace in a landscape? Is it looking out and knowing the amount of power it and, and money it took to make that landscape stop in its tracks? Or is it the beauty and knowledge of what you're letting happen? How much when you're letting go? 
and you're watching things happen spontaneously and you're seeing the true shape of a plant and you're seeing the bird that then comes to that plant and you're seeing something eating a leaf, knowing the thing that ate it is going to feed the bird and that bird's going to feed their young. And that is a whole different kind of relationship. And I don't, I don't understand the difference between why anybody would want the, the control part and how that makes them feel more comfortable and more at peace. Because to me, it's really makes me nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in light of COVID-19 and, you know, the, the social justice sort of re-equilibration and reckoning in our world right now, which I find to be as you put it earlier in the conversation, there's a beautiful part of what's happening. There's an oddly growing, if sometimes uncomfortable, aspect to where we are in our world right now. But have these urgencies in our world altered your mission, intensified your passion, shifted them in any way? I guess I, I would say they've expanded them, yeah, because I realized that overall – of course, I, I live in a bubble. And has my message been sufficiently um, just you know, non, like barrier free, I guess you'd say? And probably not. I, I speak often to people who can afford to have gardeners and, and it's and they're white. And and but I really think that although and then all the workers are 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 Latino. And how can this message uplift them? But I think one of the things that we're doing is improving working place conditions so that if people do not have to work in toxic landscapes, that's really important. And if we can insist that they be trained better, if people insist that the, the landscape crews and the landscapers that work on their properties actually are trained in what a plant needs to grow, not just how to kill it or subdue it, that's an opportunity for, um, for incredible careers in horticulture. And so many great young people are going into farming. But might I mention that working in horticulture is not quite as hard and it pays a lot better. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it's really great. It's like world's best. And, and that anybody now who wants to consider a career in horticulture, call me, you know, and let's get you hooked up with the right program. Because if you go out into the world as a landscaper and you know what you're talking about, you will have work. There is no question. I've seen it happen because so many guys say, I can't do it. I'll lose all my clients. And then there are the guys who said, this is the only way I will ever work from now. And they have more business than they can possibly handle. Is there anything you would like to add? Well, and that when you talk land stewardship, that implies a parent-child relationship. Our lands are every bit as smart, if not smarter than we are. We are not in charge of them. We are here to partner with them. We, are, we can't leave them. We can't abandon them. We have a really important role to play. We are partners. We're in a really deep and amazing relationship. And if you are true to that relationship, 
it will continue to to grow. I mean, then we use all the nature anal- you know, <laughs> words that right. we that we always compare. It will bloom. It will grow. It will, you know, and that that's the ama- that's the amazing thing. And that that could be ideally made available to everyone. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Edwina. It's been such a joy to speak with you, and um, thank you. Thank you. This was great. Edwina Von Gaal is a noted landscape designer based on New York's Long Island. She is also the founder of The Perfect Earth Project, promoting toxin-free lawns and landscapes for people, pets, and the planet. In the last few years, Edwina has expanded her mission with advocacy known as Two Thirds for the Birds, based on the research of Dr. Doug Tallamy and others, urging all residential and campus landscapes to dedicate at very least two-thirds of their plantings to native plants for habitat value and to commit to going chemical. Free. For more information and many photos of Edwina's work at Marsh House and their educational programs, or about the Perfect Earth Project and Two Thirds for the Birds, check out this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. The more we learn, the better we grow. The more we share, the better we grow together. Listen in again next week when we visit another amazing land project, this one in the middle of downtown Chicago. We're in conversation with professional gardener Laura Ikasitia, who was head of horticulture for many years at the Lurie Garden in Chicago's Millennium Park. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast and its outreach is listener-supported at cultivatingplace.com. As we head toward the vernal equinox and the end of the first quarter of 2021, please consider making a donation in support of the work you value here at Cultivating Place. A one-time or recurring monthly donation goes a very long way to making this work, engaging and empowering gardeners around the world, possible and sustainable. To make your donation, follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Whether it's $10 or $110, your support helps this program grow. Thank you. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.